That it is our privilege now to turn to God's Word, to the book of Romans, as we continue our uh, preaching series through the book of Romans. We come this morning to Romans chapter 14. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. So Romans 14, 1 through 12. And uh, before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word indeed is a, a lamp for our feet and a light unto our path. We praise you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your word. And I pray now, Lord, that the same Spirit that inspired these words of the Apostle Paul would work in our hearts, O Lord, to receive them. I pray, O Lord, that you would instruct us in the way that you would have us to be instructed. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive the truths of your word. And may they be planted deep in us. And may they bear fruit of transformation that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. So Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. The Apostle Paul says, Accept or welcome the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For you will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You may be seated. These last few years have been without question the, the hardest years of my, my ministry. And as I've reflected on 
on the state of, of our church, it has become clear to me that, that we, we, we as a body are, are not of one mind on a number of issues. Uh, we are a body with, with significant divides and polarizations and it has been my attempt and, and my prayer uh, to shepherd this church family faithfully in the midst of really a, a wide range of, of opinions and, and perspectives and, and backgrounds. And it's been my desire uh, to strive uh, for unity, um, for unity always within the bounds of, of sound doctrine and, and orthodox faith. And that's an important distinction. So that's been kind of my, my journey the last few years uh, and, and beyond that as well. But, but really, you know, striving for unity within this body in, in, within the bounds of sound doctrine and orthodox faith. And to be candid, over the last few years, it has been at times a tiresome and heavy burden. Uh, some of the issues that divide us are, are weighty and, and need careful thought and discernment. But many of the issues are, are more peripheral kinds of issues. They are matters that are not essential, uh, not, not among the, the core doctrines and beliefs of the gospel. And, and we as a body need uh, to learn how to love and, and how to welcome each other in the midst of these kinds of differences. These non-essential matters are really the, the, the focus of the message this morning. In Paul's language, these are disputable matters. Uh, matters on which fellow believers may disagree. Matters on which Scripture really makes no, no clear pronouncement. Where, where Scripture does make clear pronouncements, then that's where dividing lines can be drawn, and that's where we have to be bold and uncompromising and in, in holding to what Scripture says. Where Scripture makes no clear pronouncements, there's room for disagreements. Another way to put it is that these are matters of conscience. Uh, the, there are some issues about which fellow believers within the, within the church have different standards of conscience. And there's a really helpful book, by the way, that, that speaks to some of these issues. It's a book called Conscience uh, by uh, Andrew David Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. It's an easy read, but it, it's helpful, and it does touch on Romans 14 and helps to navigate some of these, these sort of disputable matters and, and uh uh, issues in which there are different standards of conscience within a body of believers. Now, let me give you some examples of what would fall under that category of, of uh, disputable matters or, or matters of conscience. And some of these will be more, more relevant or more uh, significant than others, but all of them, I think, do apply to the life of our church. So one example would be alcohol. There are some Christians who feel a freedom in Christ to consume alcohol in moderation, as long as it's not breaking God's word and, and into drunkenness, but to consume alcohol in moderation. There are others for whom uh, the, the consumption of any alcohol is a violation of their conscience. Another example would be Sabbath observance or uh, more accurately, Lord's Day observance. There are some who have no problem eating out on Sunday or, or golfing on Sunday or grocery shopping on Sunday. Or you can, you know, on and on the list could go. There are others uh, whose consciences prevent them from doing these things. 
Another example might be movies, video games, and, and other forms of worldly entertainment. Uh, some feel a freedom in Christ to, to watch movies, to play video games, to engage in, uh, in, in worldly entertainment, and again, as long as it is done with discernment and moderation. But then there are others whose consciences compel them to avoid all or, or maybe most forms of worldly entertainment, different standards of conscience. The same, of course, could be said for activities like, uh, and this may be true, uh, more true in days gone by, but still relative, uh, relevant, I think, for today, activities like gambling or card playing or dancing. Um, I read recently about two college roommates from a generation ago, and one had a conscience that allowed her to play cards but not dominoes, and the other roommate had a conscience that allowed her to play dominoes but not cards, and so between the two of them was quite a dull year in the dorm. Now, so far, these issues really, these are not... These are not really divisive issues within the body. I mean, maybe for some they are, not in our case. I, I, I wouldn't say that, oh, there's, there's been major conflicts and, and divisions and, and heartaches over these kinds of issues. We can disagree on these matters and still maintain unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are other issues that carry a little more weight and, and are, I think, a little more difficult to navigate. In the midst of COVID, we were divided on the issue of masks, and it became, it became a, divisive, a divisive topic. We're probably still divided on the issue of vaccines. And in recent months, it has become very clear that we are divided on, on the issue or on the topic of ministry shares, uh, which is a topic that I will be ad addressing later on in the message this morning. Now, in all of these things, the, the, the question before us this morning is, is how, do we, how do we navigate these issues faithfully? How, how do we love one another well without quarreling, uh, judging, and dividing over non-essential matters? How do we handle the, the different standards of conscience within the body of Christ? And our text in Romans 14 speaks to these issues, gives us answers to these questions. Now, from a structural standpoint, Paul, this text unfolds this way. Paul begins with a main command in verse 1, and then the rest of the text, he gives three reasons why we ought to obey that command. So there's a main command and then reasons why we are to obey it. So we're going to walk through the text this morning, and then we'll come back to some application matters at the end. So Paul begins with the main command, and he says, this is the main command that he gives in verse 1. He says, accept or welcome the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That's the main command that he gives. Now, we need to dissect that statement because there's a lot in there. Uh, Paul says to uh, accept or to, to welcome, the word really is, a, is in Greek, is a stronger word than mere acceptance. It's a word that means to welcome into one's fellowship or welcome into one's heart. And it has the, the idea of, of it's, a, it's a, you know, grounded in a Christ-like love. And so welcome, I think, is a stronger, more accurate translation. Welcome the one whose faith is weak. Now, he clarifies what he means by the weak in verse 2 and, and, and throughout this text and into the 
text next week and the week beyond, uh, he'll talk more about the weak and the strong. And so let me just, he clarifies what he means by weak here in verse 2. This is what he says. He says, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So the one whose faith is weak, it's not a weakness in terms of, you know, someone who's vulnerable to temptation or vulnerable to, to, to you know, get sucked into wrong, wrong things. It's a weakness of, of faith is what Paul is talking about. The weakness of, of conscience is really what, what Paul is talking about. Now, to understand that, we have to understand the context in which Paul is writing. In the context of the Roman church, there were divisions between those who felt compelled by their conscience to observe old covenant food laws and holy days. Most of them were mostly Jewish Christians, as you, which makes sense. So there were divisions between those who felt compelled to observe these things and those who did not. And, and, and Paul labels those who observed these practices as those who were weak in faith. They had not yet come to a full and proper understanding of their, their freedom in Christ. They, 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 hadn't quite, they hadn't quite gotten to the point of realizing that their freedom in Christ made it so that they, weren't, they, they didn't have to abide by those things. And Paul urges the body of believers to welcome those who were weak in faith. Welcome those whose consciences were weaker or narrower, if you want to put it that way. Now, on the other side of the issue, there were those who Paul uh, will label as the strong. And again, we got to kind of get out of our heads that, you know, the, the strong and the weak, it's, it's, that, that's, that's a, maybe an unhelpful uh, connotations there. Um, the, the strong were those who have a, a wider net of conscience, is what Paul is talking about. Um, the strong, in this case, were mostly Gentile Christians, and they were those who understood that their freedom in Christ meant that they were no longer bound by the old covenant laws in relation to, to food and holy days. And so to, to oversimplify the matter, uh, the weak were those whose consciences compelled them to observe certain practices like food laws, and, and the strong were those whose consciences allowed them to exercise freedom from these practices. So the weak were those with a narrower conscience or conscience that more constrained them. The strong were those with a, a wider net of conscience that felt more freedom in their Christian walk. And the problem within the Roman church was that there was quarreling and, and judgment and, and animosity and, and dissension between the two groups. They, they disagreed on these matters. And, and the disagreement was boiling over into conflict and dissension. And Paul makes it clear that both sides were at fault. Uh, both were wrongly contributing in some way to vision. body. And so Paul writes this section of his letter to correct this problem. And by the way, it's a fairly significant problem. 10% of the whole book of Romans is addressed uh, to this topic of matters of conscience. This is what Paul says as he begins to correct this problem. He says, welcome the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, again, we need to unpack that a little bit. What Paul means by quarreling in this context is the Greek word uh, diakrisis. Uh, crisis comes from the uh, verb krino, to judge. And so really, it has the idea of arguing or passing judgment on one another. And he's talking about passing judgment in relation to disputable matters, which are really the, the non-essentials of the Christian life. They are matters or opinions on which it is not necessary for all Christians to agree. 
Uh, the 16th century reformers called these things the adiaphora, those, those, those practices that Scripture does not either clearly uh, require or clearly forbid, things uh, in which there's, again, sort of wiggle room to have different, different opinions and different viewpoints, uh, things, matters on which Scripture makes no clear pronouncement. So the basic idea here is that there are some things that are outside of the core of of Christian doctrine and practice, things about which faithful Christians can can view and practice differently. And Paul says that we must not quarrel with and judge one another over these non-essential issues. And let me just say, I think this is one area where the church has has gotten it wrong many times throughout, throughout church history, where we do end up dividing and and, and, and bickering and having conflict over non-essential issues, and it grieves the Holy Spirit, and it grieves Christ as the head of the church. Paul says in verses 2 to 3, that one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything, in other words, the strong, must not treat with contempt the one who does not, in other words, the weak. And the one who does not eat everything, the one whose consciences compel them to to be more restrictive, the weak, must not judge the one who does, that is, the strong. In other words, these are disputable matters. You you can see things differently and practice things differently and still be faithful in your Christian walk. So understand that about each other. And since that is the case, Paul says, you must not quarrel over these things. You must not judge one another over these things. You must not allow them to cause division. You must not judge and look down on and despise one another over these kinds of matters. So that is the main command that Paul laid out for the Christians in Rome, and it's a command that still very much applies to the church today. Of course, the issue, the specific issues are different. We don't really wrestle with food laws so much anymore and, and holy days necessarily, um, but the basic idea remains the, sa- remains the same. There are still areas of adiaphora in the Christian church, things that fall under that, that category of, of non-essential or disputable matters. And we will, so we will disagree on things like alcohol consumption and Sabbath observance and our engagement with worldly entertainment and our opinions and views on vaccines and all kinds of other things we are going to disagree about. And we will disagree on weightier issues like political positions and, and ministry shares. But to the best of our ability, we must not allow these things to cause dissension or division among us. We must not succumb to judgment and contempt over disputable matters. I think Rupert Meldenius captured it well when he said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Welcome the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. In other words, don't, don't allow these issues, these kinds of things to boil over into dissension and conflict. Do not judge and despise each other over non-essential matters. That is the main command that Paul gives in this text. And that's my, as, as your soon-to-be departing pastor, that is one of my prayers for, for this church, that you would abide by these things and, and walk the path of unity over these non-essential matters. 
Now, Paul goes on then after stating that main command to give three reasons why we must obey this command, why we must not quarrel over disputable matters. And the first is this, is that God has accepted those who are in Christ. Uh, Paul said in verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, and here's why, for God has accepted them. True believers may think and behave differently on certain issues, but if they are true believers, they, they are accepted by God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And, and how dare we reject those whom God has accepted? How, how dare we despise those whom God has called his treasured possession? I mean, I mean think about that for a moment. If God has labeled somebody and, and identified somebody as his treasured possession, who are we to come and, and, and treat that, that person with contempt? Paul goes on to say in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, Paul's point here is that it's not our place. It's not our place to judge fellow believers. Professing believers are all servants of God as their only master. And so they stand or fall before God. It is God, who, God alone who has the authority and the right to cast them down in judgment or to make them stand by his grace. That's God's call. And this is an area where I think so many of us need correction. It has grieved me to hear how quick some are to judge others within the body of Christ, how quick to cast labels and assign labels like unchristian and, and evil in relation to professing believers. Are, are you really going to stand behind that? We need to know our place and consider carefully what Paul says. We are mere servants of Christ. Who are we to judge fellow servants? We're all together servants of one master. So let's hold ourselves accountable and leave the judgment of professing believers to Christ, who is the one and only true master of us all. God doesn't accept or reject people based on their position on non-essential issues. Again, we need to understand that. God doesn't accept or reject people based on their position on non-essential issues. He accepts people based on their standing with Christ. We must not quarrel over disputable matters because God has accepted those who are in Christ. The second reason for not quarreling over disputable matters, is that we all live under the lordship of Christ. Uh, Paul develops this point in verses 5 through 9. He says in verse 6, Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and, and gives thanks to God. And he goes on to say, uh, For none of us lives for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now, what Paul is saying here is that each believer's conscience is driven not by their own sort of arbitrary standard, not by their, you know, kind of a willy-nilly desire to do whatever they want to do, but by what they believe to be honoring and glorifying to God, if they are living that out faithfully. So, for example, one believer may do yard work on, on a Sunday and may do this to the Lord, meaning that they believe it to be a way to honor and glorify God. Maybe this is a person for whom, you know, connection with the earth is, is a good way to, to rest in God's beauty and to rest in God's provision. 
and, and to enjoy the delight of God's, of God's creation. And so for them, it is a worshipful activity to be outside doing yard work and, and have getting their hands dirty and their hands in the dirt. And it's a way, it, it can be a worshipful thing for that person, a way for them to honor and glorify God. Another believer may abstain from yard work on Sunday. Maybe it's a person who works with, with his or her hands throughout the week or is outside a, a chunk of the week. And, and for them, uh, the, most, the best way to honor and glorify God is to abstain from that on that particular day, to, to, to take a rest from that kind of work on that day and to have it set aside for, for non-physical work. And so they abstain as an expression of honoring and glorifying God. Now, the point is that both can, can be acting out of their own convictions in a way that they believe best honors and glorifies God. We, we all live under the lordship of Christ, but we can express our submission to that lordship in different ways. And, and therefore, Paul says, we must not quarrel over disputable matters. We, we have freedom to express our submission to the lordship of Christ in different ways. The third reason for not quarreling over disputable matters is because God alone is the true judge to whom all believers are accountable. Paul says in verses 10 to 12, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, when Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, he, uh, the, the term judgment seat is a translation of the Greek word bema. And that word is used only two times in the whole New Testament. And, and in both cases, it's used by Paul in reference to believers appearing before God to give an account of what we have done with our lives as Christians. So it's an important distinction. We, we see this clearly in the second place where, where Paul uses the term in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, where Paul says this, For we, we all must appear before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due, for, due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this, this bema judgment is not the same as the final judgment, where all people will be separated like sheep and goats, and their eternal destiny will be declared. That is the, the final judgment. That's not what Paul is talking about by the word bema. The bema judgment is a judgment for believers. Uh, it's not a judgment to determine our salvation, which has already been determined through our faith in Christ, but it's rather a judgment to determine our rewards in the kingdom of heaven. The Bema judgment is a penetrating uncovering of all that we have ever done as believers, an unveiling of every thought and word and deed so that each may receive what is due based on that assessment. Uh, some will be given great rewards in the kingdom, and others, as Paul has said uh, somewhere else, will get in as one barely escaping through the flames. The Bema judgment is what determines that level of rewards in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what this means uh, for us is that, is that our failures and our shortcomings and our sins do not go unnoticed. So it's not really the case where, yes, we are, our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, and we, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not going to be condemned or judged by, for our sins. Absolutely true if we are in Christ. But it's not true that 
that those sins don't matter at all. Uh, they will all be unveiled before the Bema judgment seat of God. We, we can't judge others and get away with it. It won't it just be like, it just will be as if it never happened. We can't despise others in our hearts and not have it unveiled in the sight of our holy God. So every condescending thought, every act of arrogance, every deed of judgment and contempt will be brought to light. And if you think about that, I, I can't imagine what a heart-wrenching experience that will be to have all those things exposed and brought to light in the presence of our God. And yet, as Anthony Hookema, I think, has hopefully said, by God's grace, this judgment, this Bema judgment will end in praise because all sins of believers will be revealed, but they will be revealed as forgiven sins whose guilt is covered by the blood of Christ. And so we must not quarrel over disputable matters because God alone is the true judge to whom all believers are accountable. Now, before we leave this topic of disputable matters or matters of conscience, I want to I take us over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When we read Romans 14 together with 1 Corinthians 8, we can deduce from Paul a, a basic principle and see how that basic principle might apply in the life of the church today. So in 1 Corinthians 8, let me just set this up for you a little bit. Paul is addressing the topic of food sacrificed to idols. So it's similar to Romans 14, but the context is a little bit different. Not, so it's not just only concerned with Old Testament, food, Old Covenant food laws and things. It's specifically food that's been sacrificed to idols. And for some believers, it went against their conscience to eat meat that had been used in pagan worship. So they, they just could not in good conscience participate in and eat any of that kind of meat. They, uh, for other believers, they had freedom of conscience to eat the meat. They, they could exercise this right without violating their conscience or compromising their commitment to Christ. So just as in Romans 14, there were, the, there were again, different standards of conscience within the body. And Paul gives some instruction that is uh, focused especially on the strong meaning those who exercise their rights to eat that kind of meat, those whose consciences cast a wider net and allow for more freedoms. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, be careful, again, this is to the strong, those with a wider uh, conscience, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So when it, when it comes to, to different standards of conscience within the body of believers, and when we consider this topic in light of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 taken together, we can deduce this basic principle, and that is that believers are to safeguard the consciences of those within the body who are striving to live faithfully under the lordship of Christ. I think that is an accurate and a simple 
a principle that we can clearly deduce from Paul's arguments in Romans 14 and here in Rome, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are to safeguard the consciences of those within the body who are striving to live faithfully under the lordship of Christ. And we notice in Paul how the burden falls on the strong, really the, the, the burden falls on the strong to make allowances or sacrifices for the sake of those with weaker consciences. So we could add this corollary to that, uh, to that basic principle, that those whose consciences cast a wider net, in other words, the strong, those who allow uh, them to do more, are to make allowances or sacrifices for the sake of those whose consciences cast a narrower net, the weak, those who allow them to do less. Again, that, that I think we... Is, comes straight out of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As Paul himself said, even though he recognized his own freedom to eat meat, he would never eat meat again if it would cause a fellow brother or sister to sin by emboldening them to eat meat and so go against their own conscience. So for Paul, he's like, I, I have no problem. I, I know my, in, in my own conscience, my freedom in Christ allows me to eat meat that's been sacrificed. It doesn't matter to me if it's been used in pagan worship. I know that it's just meat and it doesn't, you know, idols aren't real. There's only one true God and one true Christ. And, and so I have no problem eating this meat because it, it, it's just, I, I know that it's not an issue. But Paul says there are others for whom their conscience binds them in this area, and for them to eat that kind of meat would be a compromise of their convictions regarding, regarding proper worship and, and allegiance to Christ. And Paul says, instead of just sort of coming down hard on those with, the, with that weaker conscience and saying, hey, you're, you're wrong here. How can you not know your freedom in Christ? Paul says, no, I... I I'm going to respect that, and I'm going to, I will not ever eat meat again then. I'll make that allowance. I'll make that sacrifice for the sake of those with a weaker conscience so that I do not, by my action, cause them to sin against their own conscience. So that's the basic principle and, and, and its corollary. Let me give you, let me leave you this morning with just a few examples of how this principle might play out in the life of the church today, and then we'll come back to ministry shares. So here, here's an example. If there are people in the church whose consciences don't allow them to consume any alcohol, well, then the church should not host a wine and cheese event, okay? I, that seems pretty straightforward, um, but I think that's, an, uh, that's a legitimate application of, of this principle. Or, or at a more, on a more personal level, if you are a person whose conscience allows you to consume alcohol and, and you invite someone to dinner who does not consume alcohol, then you should refrain from alcohol during that dinner unless, you, of course, you've worked things out with that person and, and everything's fine. That, that's whatever, but you get the idea. You should make allowances or sacrifices to safeguard the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ. That is, again, it's an appropriate application of Paul's principle. Here's another example that is, I think, a little closer to home. Several months ago, uh, we as council decided to launch a new fellowship program in which families would, would be invited to go out to a, a local restaurant after work on Sunday. Uh, we'd have a couple of restaurants, and, and anybody's welcome to come and just come out and, and eat together, have fellowship together. And it was kind of the idea as a way to, to connect with each other, a way to build relationships, a, a kind of a simple way to uh, connect with visitors and, and get to know new people. But in the process of launching that program, we learned there are some within the body whose consciences don't allow them to eat out on Sunday. 
So what do we do with that? Do we just say, hey, well, too bad for you. Uh, uh, you know, we, we think you're, you're wrong and so tough. No. Uh, we discussed this as counsel, and, and for the sake of those who, whose consciences didn't allow them to, to do this, based on Paul's instruction in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, we decided, and I believe we rightly decided, to suspend the program. I think that's a legitimate, I think that's an appropriate application of Paul's principle. We were safeguarding the consciences of those who are striving to live faithfully under the lordship of Christ. Now, let me bring it a little closer to home still. I believe the same principle applies to ministry shares. Uh, now, there is not a direct correlation uh, between uh, the issues that Paul was addressing in the Roman church and ministry shares in, in our church. If you press the application too far, uh, there are some ways that it's going to break down. Uh, absolutely. But at a broad level, I believe that the same basic principle applies. There are some within the body for whom our current method of giving to ministry shares is a violation of their conscience. In order to safeguard the consciences of those striving to live faithfully under the lordship of Christ, I believe that a proper and appropriate application of Paul's principle would be to change our approach to ministry shares. Uh, to allow people to give to the general fund in a way that does not violate their conscience. There are ways to do that. There are ways to provide for unity within the body that can allow people to still give to ministry shares whose consciences allows, but also does not force people to give to the general fund in a way that is going against their conscience. There are ways to do that. And I believe that this is, uh, that would be an appropriate and proper application of Paul's principle. And I believe it's just one of the many ways that we can apply Paul's principle and foster God-glorifying unity and harmony in the life of the church. And again, I say this as your soon-to-be departing pastor. This is my pastoral guidance for a way forward with ministry shares. Now, in the end, we, we, all of this is going to lead us back to the cross because uh, everything leads to the cross. In the end, these words of Paul do lead us to the cross. It is beneath the cross of Jesus that we see ourselves as we really are, broken by sin, deserving of wrath, rescued by grace. All of us who are believers in Christ, that is who we are, uh, broken by sin, deserving of wrath, rescued by grace. So let us come together beneath the cross. Let us Welcome one another in the love of Christ without quarreling over disputable matters. Let us live in harmony to the glory of our King. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, our Master and our Lord, we come before you, Lord, as your servants. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would Teach us and guide us and shepherd us, O oh Lord, through uh, disputable matters, through those things in, over which we as fellow believers disagree. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we might handle them faithfully, that we might not allow them to cause dissension and divisions and animosities and and bitterness within the body. 
I pray, O oh Lord, that, that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit and according to your word to live out what Paul says here, that we might welcome the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Lord, in the space of silent prayer and response, I pray that you would speak to our own hearts and each of us as individuals and bring to light, O oh Lord, ways in which we maybe have not done that faithfully and hear our confessions and our prayers and, and hear our pleas, O oh Lord, to walk in unity together. So, Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning. Lord, it is beneath the cross of Jesus that we stand. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would see ourselves standing together beneath the cross. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would walk in harmony and in unity with one another, loving one another, making allowances and not judging one another. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us Christ-like humility and selflessness, Lord, because that's what it takes to walk in fellowship together as the body of Christ. And may we do so, O Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to close our worship by...